Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Ken Wei. Many believe in the potential of China's economy for the year 2024. The world's second largest economy has introduced a series of policies stimulate high-quality development. Earlier this year, during the World Economic Forum annual meeting, I had an exclusive interview with Ray Dalio, the founder of Bridgewater. What does China's economic transformation mean for the world? Let's hear his answers. Ray, what a pleasure to see you. So good to see you again. I really wonder, what is uh, the nature of curiosity these days from the business community about China? For example, reflecting in your work. Of course, there's been changes in China in a way where um, the business community is concerned about the conflict between the United States and China. And I would say that last March it reached its worst point. And that was a terrible, terrible time. And it's made improvements since then. In other words, both sides recognizing that a terrible economic war or a terrible military war would be terrible. And so that there is now a better amount of talking. And I think it'll be important for the world to hear him and then also um, to continue to paint the picture of China's role in the world as a, um, as a peaceful, uh, productive party in the world. Mm. Do you think people will be convinced? I think actions, take, uh, actions will be important over a period of time. People, I think, sometimes come with their stereotypes. They don't know China well. I've been lucky. I've been going since 1984, so I know China pretty well. Uh, but still, there are questions. So I think over a period of time, it's more a matter of the actions that are taken. Now, since the meeting between the two presidents in San Francisco last year, we see both sides have drawn up some specific to-do list, and they're trying to deliver. So far, so good. So far, so good. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, this is an interesting year, 2024. You have in the United States one of the most eye-catching elections. And you have in China an economic transformation where people are asking about the economic growth. So how do you see these two events in two very different countries working on the bilateral relations? Uh, I believe the elections in the United States are one of the greatest risks for the world. <clears throat> because the United States is internally having a great conflict between values um, and that's brought about populism and there's a rather extremism that's operating there so that neither side will accept losing or subjugating themselves to the other side. This election is going to be a question for democracy. Can democracy work it out? Can the United States work together or will the factions break it apart? And for China, of course, as I mentioned, uh, there is an economic transition to put it into a, a, a diplomatic phrase. So how do you see the adjustment of its economic uh, uh, potential is now working on the relationship between China and the United States? There is an immediate um, problem that has taken place because of the uh, uh, real estate problem, caring to the local government, financial problem, those problems are manageable. 
if well managed well. There might be forms of restructuring, they need monetary policy and the like. They have an effect on people's attitudes and their willingness to spend money and so on. That's of course um, an, an issue. And then there's the international issue. Um, international conflict with the United States. The, um, the problem with that is also a, a problem from the U.S. perspective. Foreign investors or foreign com companies worry about being sanctioned in China. So it might be actions that could come from either the U.S. side or can come from the Chinese side. And then there's still the remarkable development of Chinese technologies and Chinese productions. Look at the leadership that's taking place in um, wind and uh, electric vehicles and even the, the development of uh, the chip race. Um, you know, that's an American-Chinese competition, and it's really quite remarkable how effective that is. But of course, that also, in the competitor's view, represents a risk so you look at marketplaces, Europe, will electric vehicles, what will the roles be, and so on. So those competitions are going on, and how they're handled, I think, will be really important. Now, you hosted earlier an interaction with Mr. Liu Jianchao, uh, one of the uh, very prominent Chinese ministers of the Chinese Communist Party. And I'm sure you have, with that closed-door session, interact about Chinese diplomacy, the goals of diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis economic development. Tell me more about what is the takeaway from that meeting? How is it interact with what you just explained to me and analyzed about U.S.-China? Uh, the main thing that he and I were both hoping to accomplish is to create a mutual understanding. That doesn't mean an agreement about what should be, but to try to eliminate misunderstandings because they're very dangerous. And um, he was remarkable in being able to be so open. He said, give me your toughest questions, whatever they might be. Let's discuss any of them. And he was really remarkable in having those exchanges. Uh, I think there, there are questions. There, they may seem impolite, but if uh, the United States, if he asks the United States, how could we trust in the stability of our relationship when the politics is so volatile. Okay, questions that, and then back and forth in terms of those delicate questions. That is um, really bringing about an understanding. So uh, that was something I was very, very pleased to see. He made a big impression in the United States. Quality communications, so crucial these days. Seeing it through the other's eyes. Not seeing it through one's own eyes, which could be biased. And then agreeing that there are certain terrible things that must not happen. What might be your concern for the next biggest challenge as you see today? Well, uh, as I say, when I combine the risk of the internal conflict in the United States with the risk of the external conflict, um, that opens all sorts of types of economic uh, risks as well, political. The costs of war, the United States being overextended in some places, um, and how that works out. Spreading of war in the Middle East, spreading of war in other places that create great disruptions. Um, and then, of course, we have this climate issue, which is, a bit, is going to be very costly. 
I think in 24, it's, it's that, uh, that confluence. And then red lines. We're so close to red lines. Let's say if we were to take the Taiwan issue, okay, we're very close to red lines with the Taiwan issue. We're close to red lines in a number of areas. What does the chip war look like? How do sanctions work? All of those. So it's dangerously close to those red lines. I think wisdom will prevail, but this is an environment where accidents also could happen. Mm. What would be the best advice? Yeah, the mutual understanding and, and, and being realistic. You know, Chinese concept of war, since the art of war was written, is that you should never win a war through military fighting because that's so painful and you're, you must not have been clever enough to win the war through military destructive. I would say if we take that kind of war or if we take a terrible economic war and we realize that we should be clever to be able to compete mm -hmm. intensely. Technology is an interesting factor. Uh, as we know, this year's uh, annual meeting focused so much on artificial intelligence. This is also a competition we see between China and the United States. Now, how do you see these uh, technology factors, especially artificial intelligence, likely to play here? Well, throughout history, we've seen whoever wins the technology war, wins the economic war, and wins, wins the military war. So from both sides, it's very, very important that they do the best to win. They also recognize the threats that might come from those technologies. So in an ideal world, you'd have cooperation, but that, re that reality prevails. So, um, so now what you're seeing is that a, a, a chess game playing. Yes. What technology and who and will I prevent it and what will I mean for the countries that are in between? Will they be able to use it and what sanctions will develop and so on? And then how do they get around those sanctions? And then so you see it where let's say Chinese companies will then go set up uh, companies that are not Chinese companies, not run by Chinese um, and then they'll compete and so on. I think in this world today, it's very difficult to control all of those things. But that's the nature of what the war is like. Mm -hmm. Now, the technology also related to people's uh, understanding of each other, because as we know, rhetorics and narratives goes with these echo chambers, totally energized by new technologies. How, how do you see these elements once again working in the overall discussion. But I, I think that that brings us back to this energy of entrepreneurship. You know, okay, the, it's man's inventiveness, mm -hmm. right? Educate your people well, make them civil, and Literacy. let them work well together and enable them with capital so that that enables them to be creative and be effective. Yeah. And so I think we come down to those basic fundamentals for both countries. Those are the elements of competition that matter the most. And also, what has been China's biggest contribution to the world over the past few decades when you observe China? What could be the biggest contribution China can make in the next years that, as you see? I think the greatest contribution in the world without a doubt was the efficient production of um, a, a lot of um, a lot of things that uh, the, 
created incomes for people who enjoyed the benefits of those incomes and also created products which were cost effective. Um, so that was the contribution. Um, in terms of your question about the future, I think the, I, I, I think the view of China, as, uh, as has been stated and actually demonstrated in history, that's an extension of a Confucian view, which is that um, how to have harmony and how to not have the conflict and to have effective competition something even geopolitically like the tribute system in a sense where um, that's, there's the opportunity to be able to do this in a way that doesn't produce the great conflicts. I, I think that would be um, a, a great contribution. Yeah. There's a different view about war, for example, and war is our biggest threat. So um, contributions as to how we could work this out together would be great. Mm. Ray. What a pleasure seeing you here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, a PricewaterhouseCoopers survey among global CEOs on their shifting dynamics with political leaders. From the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, my talk with the PwC Global CEO and Chairman, Bob Morris, next. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast. We'll see you there. Welcome back. This is World Insight with me, Tianwei. Changes in communication between the business community and political leaders were hard to miss last year. To figure out the reason, PwC did a survey on global CEOs. For this and more, I talked with PwC Global Chair Bob Moritz. Here is our talk. Last time we saw each other at APEC in San Francisco. A few months from now. So in retrospect, are things getting better? Of course, it depends on the interpretation of better, but tell me about your takeaway. Our takeaway from our PwC survey is they are better. And what I mean by that is the CEO community is a lot more optimistic compared to where they were last time and a lot less pessimistic. Mm -hmm. Now that's views on a global economy. I think we have to differentiate their confidence level on a global economy versus their confidence level of their ability to raise revenues in the next 12 months. Because the reality is we see actually less confidence mm -hmm. in the CEO's ability to raise revenues. And that goes back to what we see. We see a more stable, nonetheless fragile economy compared to where we were a year ago, but we see a slowing economy compared to where we were a year ago. Yeah. And as a result, it's tougher to raise revenues. Typically you'll raise prices, you'll increase the amount of consumption, mm -hmm. you'll get more revenue from that. Not so easy these days. And as a result, CEOs have to rethink their revenue expectations and the effectiveness and efficiencies of their organizations for the bottom line. What about some advice from you, your research, in terms of this so-called rethink? It's clear that when you look at the next 10 years, we have a number of external factors, AI, climate, regulatory, whatever it may be. And CEOs are struggled with and are troubled by the amount of change that's coming their way. 
can they keep up is the question they're asking. And unfortunately, 45% of the CEOs we surveyed around the world would say, I cannot stay in business with the economic model I have unless I radically change in reaction to those forces that I talked about earlier. Now, it's interesting there because there's 55% that intuitively within don't need to change, right. which the reality is they do, they may just not know it yet. But even within the 45%, there's a need for organizations to drive change faster and in scale to take advantage of the opportunities. And the ones that do that well are actually gonna be leading the development and leading the sustainability right. efforts that we have around the world. So do you see those uh, uh, with some common personalities or common ground, while those are trying to seek a change? Which direction of change are they looking at, really? First, you have to have a relentless focus on what the consumer really needs and wants. It's changing all the time, both in terms of what goods and services they want, how they will purchase them, and how they will consume them. And understand all three is extremely important as you enhance the loyalty because it costs money to attract new consumers. You don't want to lose any. The second thing is the disruption risk that comes from digital artificial intelligence and generative AI. And that's fast approaching. We see radical change in the last 12 months, and CEOs believe it's going to impact um, significantly the way they create, capture, and realize the value of their business model today. So that's a second piece. How are they looking at the so-called ideological competitions that we have seen over the past few years? Are they getting more mature about that? Very much so. You see more resilience in their organizations, a better understanding of the world in which we live, and as a result, a better resiliency level and mindset to say, we have to acknowledge these differences in the world. Let's figure out a way to navigate those differences rather than work for one single answer. Trade war? Uh, as we know, that played a key role a few years ago. What about now for CEOs? Trade concerns still continue. The reality is it's lessened from what I'll call the catastrophic concerns that were had a couple of years ago. The concept of globalization, people say is dead. I'm gonna argue it's not dead. It's just gotta be rewired. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing more bilateral, trilateral, regional deals that are gonna be done, but the world is still smaller. There is more dependency on one another, no matter where we may be. And we can't solve for these problems without it. So it's lessened, but it's gotta be rewired both in the actions of what you do and the mindset which you bring to it. Also, technology competition and sometimes even can be described as rivalry. You see that uh, uh, as an example, the so-called chip war. So how do you see that is going to play a role and how CEOs globally reacting to that reality? CEOs today, have most of them have come to the realization there's different rules and regulations in various parts of the world. There's different trade requirements and regulations in different parts of the world. I've got to comply with all of them if I want to be a global business. Or but can they? The answer they is must. yes, they have to. They have no choice if you want to be doing business in these countries. But that means is you're going to have to spend more money more effectively. And the organizations that actually, I'm gonna argue, use data effectively and efficiently, maybe leveraging technology differently, will do that faster, better, cheaper than anybody else. If you do it, that's a competitive advantage. So these global organizations that use AI, for example, to manage for compliance, is an upside potential, not a downside risk. And differentiation is the name of the game relevant to the work that you have to do. But as you know, all the technologies are also being governed in very different styles of uh, uh, governments and there are different rules as well. This is where CIOs and the CEOs and COOs are coming to the realization, I've got to actually have a fragmented picture that comes together with a lot of puzzle pieces, not a one-size-fits-all. Because the one-size-fits-all will not work. Right. 
it will not be effective and efficient either because I've got so many workarounds that deal with local requirements. So this regulatory regime and overlay, right. important, but those that manage it best will be the ones that have differentiating upside potential. 2024 is a very interesting year and that is an understatement as we know it. Elections taking place all over the world and meanwhile we also see the economies are trying to figure out the way forward. So. How do you see the mentality that you just described vis-a-vis -vis all these, what we know, going to happen? It's clear that the CEOs today um, are doing a better job of defining what's controllable. What yeah. can they own, control, take action on, and get results from? And there's a realization of there's so much out there that's uncontrollable yeah. or unknown. And in that case, we shouldn't spend a lot of time talking about the what-ifs. We should be talking about if this happens, what will you do about yeah. it? So scenario planning becomes extremely important and optionality becomes extremely important in the eyes, I'm gonna argue, of CEOs, but also in the eyes of governments as they think about the relative role that they play. Mm -hmm. So speed and scale is an important theme. Agility and scenario planning and optionality is another really important theme for CEOs to drive mm -hmm. through their organizations. Last question, China, of course. Um, this is a country in transformation that's been going on for some time. Now we see the country trying to seek uh, what they call high quality development. So behind this uh, rather abstract phrase, what do you see is the logic? How is this logic working together with what you just described about the mentalities and realities of global CEOs? China was, from the group of CEOs, the most concerned about the reinvention over the next 10 years than any other place in the world. Now let's also put that into context. China has gone through the biggest change and as a result their CEOs are much more attuned to the need for change. So it's not like we're resting on complacency. And that's a good thing because they recognize it in taking action compared to those that don't even recognize the need for change. So a lot of people worry about the downside risk. I actually take the other side of the equation which is they're acknowledging it and doing something about it. Second thing, as you think about China, the combination of the infrastructure that's been created. When you look at the skill sets that the citizens have, the amount of technology that's in place already, the education system that's there that fosters innovation, these are key elements for future growth and innovation and entrepreneurship. And as we know from China, the ability to scale that is actually achievable. Mm -hmm. And when you scale that in China, it's fantastic. So that's another upside potential here in terms of the secret ingredients for what I'll call sustained economic growth. And as you look at some of the other pictures, it's really important to focus on the continuation rise of the lower middle class, particularly in the central and western parts of China. Second is China's continued role in the global economy, supply chain and otherwise. And third, how does the China citizen continue to consume in a quality way rather than an excess way? And that's where President Xi's focus on quality growth is super important for the world to understand that there'll be a sustainability to it, not a lot of volatility to it. And now you see in China just some few anecdotes, uh, stories about uh, local tourism mm -hmm. uh, in Heilongjiang province, you know, the ice sculpture festivals. And you also see in Shanghai, one TV series ignited the enthusiasm to seek what Shanghai was like in the 1990s. Right. So all these are anecdotal stories mm -hmm. going on in China. What are they showing? about 
the so-called new consumption, new uh, energy, uh, new um, development. So how do you see these new anecdotes are actually reflecting parts of China? So when you look at these anecdotes, you see a great local interest to understand history, but also make sure we're focused on the future. Likewise, from an outside of China perspective, a better understanding of the history of China and the reason it exists and how it exists, so you know how to operate within it. So a lot more understanding, whereas, currently, the last decade or two, while China's been changing, people around the world had to be educated of China, what the consumers want, what the citizens want. So there's actually a convergence point at the local level and a convergence point more so at the global level right now, which actually creates that opportunity for consumption locally, growth locally, consumption globally enabled by what China can do at the global level and enabling the global growth. And that's all the time for today. If you'd like to know more, search World Insight. Check out our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on X and Facebook. I'm Tianwei. On behalf of the team, thanks for being with us.